they would come by his, his bed and say, uh, David, it's the third watch. Thank you. And he, would get a, and he would just lay there and reflect on the goodness of God. I think he did that. Not in the Bible. Uh, a lot of things, I think, are not in the Bible. But, uh, but uh, such a good thing to do. You wake up in the middle of the night and you just reflect on the, reflect on the truths of God. How refreshing. One thing that we haven't done here is that nobody has told a joke. I haven't heard a single joke since I've been here. That's terrible. I'm going to tell you a joke. I'm going to tell you a joke. This guy finds himself at the gates of heaven. St. Peter meets him and checks the book. And he says, well, your name is on the book. He says, welcome to heaven. He said, but before you go in the gate here, uh, I like to ask men, when you were on earth, did you do anything brave and noble and and the guy says well matter of fact I did he said I was driving down the interstate interstate and I pulled over to this truck stop to refuel and maybe have lunch and there was a young lady there trying to get to her car nice really nice young lady and there was about six motorcycle guys that had parked and blocked her away with their motorcycles and they were just giving her a hard time just harassing this young lady so I walk over there and I, take, I looked at the, look guy, the guy who looked like he was the leader, gut on him and wasn't shaven and tattoos and earrings. And so hey, I walked over and I just kind of pulled him. I says, listen, lug nut, leave the lady alone. Get your bikes out of the way and let her get their car. And then I reached up and I grabbed him by his earrings and I yanked on his earrings a couple of times. And I said, listen, if you don't leave the lady alone, this situation is going to, see, is going to get serious. You understand me? So St. Peter says, well, I got to admit, that was very noble of you and uh, quite brave. He said, when did all this take place? He said, oh, about five minutes ago. <laughs> oh, about my deal. I don't, I don't mess with motorcycle guys. <laughs> Let me just clarify one thing about last night. We talked about Jehovah Yireh, God is might, God will provide. Jehovah Yireh, God will provide. I mentioned to you that uh, all my wife and myself and all of our kids have basically said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and, and, and his righteousness and all these things that you need to live will be added to you. And that how that we had done that, that's how we live that we have placed God not only first in our life, the only thing in our life. And, and yet we seem to be in, in want, in, in a sense almost destitute. I was down trying to help my daughter uh, because all I could do, I had nothing. And all I could do was physical stuff. So I would go down and trim trees and, and uh, work on our house, fix the refrigerator or the, or the disposal and things like that that I could do. I was trying to help her. And she made a comment. She came in and she said, well... I just paid the rent for the next month, so we got at least another 30 days. And, of course, she said, I got $6.28 in my account. And that's everything. There's no other account. That's it. Three kids. So, I mean, we were struggling. She was struggling. But I, I just want you to know, in telling all those stories, that uh, I had asked God. I, I struggled with this for a long time before I, I, I could freely give my kids to God because I knew what it cost for God to shape you into the woman that he has equipped and called you to be and knows that you will be the most satisfied at being. He, we, uh, God knows who you are and what you should be. And it's like one guy said, it's the responsibility of the Holy Spirit to take us from where we were to where we are not. But that's his job. He takes us. He is working on us to make us better. And so he's working on my kids. But it was a long time before I could just say, okay, God, let me release them to you. And when he did, of course, he began to work on them. But first, he kind of had to remove us out of the way. He broke us. He stripped us. Because as God is working on my kids, he doesn't want me to get in the way. He doesn't want me to interrupt what he's doing. So he conveniently eliminates that possibility. He strips my wife and I of any asset that we've got. So I'm driving home one night. We're on I-35 going north, and it's dark. It's about 9, 
And uh, I tell my wife, I said, you know, if I had anything, if I had anything I could sell, I would do it in order to help Jennifer. And she said, yeah, I would too. So then I begin to pray. I said, Lord, I'd really pray. God, help me. Uh, the, the lawsuits ruined my business. I need to uh, help me to get it back on track and begin to develop customers and clients. And maybe I can make some income and God just help me. And I'm just going along and complaining and asking God to, to help me to gain some income so that I could help my daughter. And the Lord spoke to me. You know what he said? You don't like the way I'm taking care of her. And I just froze. You know, God says to me, you gave it to me, you don't, you know, I, I will provide that. You don't like the way I'm doing my job? And I just immediately said, God, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was wrong. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. And I, uh, <clears throat> but the, uh, the thing that, you know what I learned out of that? Be careful that you're praying, does it become complaining? And that was a lesson that I learned. Just be careful that you're praying, does it become complaining? I, uh, I confessed my sins, uh, told God that I was sorry. You know what I was telling God? I was telling God, if I had the resources, I'd do a better job than you're doing. And that's what I was telling him. It was not right. That was not right. That was so poor, so immature of me. So I wanted to clarify that about Jehovah Yireh, that God is our provider, and he does provide. Uh, he never allows us. Well, let me put it. He, we are never out of his care. Now, Sometimes provision may be going hungry. Paul often went, Paul makes a comment, he said that he was often without food. And not that he didn't have enough to eat, he didn't have anything to eat. And he says, this is 2 Corinthians 11, I was often without food. So that may be God's perfect plan for you, that you don't have anything to eat. But God has not lost control. He knows exactly what he's doing and he's right on target. We and like I said, we learn to trust. We learn to trust, as did the Apostle Paul. But the Apostle Paul never complained. Not once is it ever recorded that he complained about not God, not God, God not taking care of him. Now, I want to share one other thing. This, I, I told a joke. Nobody's told a joke. Got nothing to do with it. I'm going to read you what I wrote about my wife. I hope I can get through it. But my wife, when... Uh, uh, she, each grandchild was born. We got nine grandkids. The oldest is 26. The youngest are twin boys, 13. And she has prayed for every grandchild every day since they were born. Every one of them, every day. And some of them have struggled. Uh, we had one kid named Samuel. And Samuel kind of got a little wild hair every now and then. He just, he never got into real trouble. He never got, you know, Drugs or nothing like that, drinking, drunk, or, you know, arrested or anything. But he just was bumping up against the fence. He knew where the line was, and he just lived right next to it. You know what? You don't do that, I'm sure. You know. But, but, uh, but that was Samuel. I was concerned about Samuel, and I was moaning and groaning about Samuel, and my wife never did. She was not worried about Samuel. Let me read you something. I, I went down to my, I was driving down I uh, US 75 Central Expressway. In Dallas, I'd been meeting with some guys up in McKinney, and I was on my way down to my little office, and I thought about that. And these words came to mind, and as soon as I got to my office, I went into the conference room, you know, got a big whiteboard, and I just began to write. And this is what I wrote. <clears throat> my grandmother's prayer. A grandmother's prayer. And it's really not a poem. I don't know what you'd call it. It's just stuff. Okay, but here's what I wrote. From birth... His name, uh, I'm really kind of thinking about Samuel, but from birth, his name was on her lips, asking for his good, that as he grew, his ways, his deeds would never know the paths of sin and deceit. Day after day, year after year, she brings his name, his needs to her God, though she is the only one who ever does. Who else is praying for Samuel? Samuel. 
Sadly, as the young boy's dabbling in sin would grow, still her calm, unwavering voice would bear his name, his needs to her God. But can one single voice be heard midst the clamorous pleadings for favor that never cease assaulting the throne called grace? One voice, can it be heard? Is one sole voice enough to gain the attention of him who made heaven and earth? Is it worth his time to concern himself with one young boy drifting closer to the rocky shoals of the lie? Aren't there grander, more important tasks with which to attend to make this one errant lad the focus of the God of the universe? Is he worth it? Yet, there it is again, that lone, unmistakable voice without urgency or demand, bringing that same name to the ears and the heart of him she calls the God who cares. And even as the days of silence grows, she patiently yet relentlessly sounds his name, his needs to her God. One lone, solitary voice praying for her grandson midst the clamor and the cacophony of the demanding masses. But there's a change. It's as if the life was suddenly illumined by light. Decisions are made. Sins are forsaken. Wisdom and truth triumph. It was the weekend retreat, a sermon, a testimony that ignited the process of redemption. Nowhere is there acknowledged the solitary voice of the grandmother whose daily prayers found their way to him who sits on the throne. Nowhere is the God who listened intently and personally to each one of this simple grandmother's prayers and who responded with undeserved grace acknowledged as the God who always hears, who always cares. We are so lucky, we say, the boy finally grew up. That's what I wrote. Prayed for him every day since he was born. But you know, when change takes place, it's very, we just don't say, boy, God is at work. We say, hey, the guy grew up. You know, hey, isn't that lucky? Or we lucky? He finally grew up. Nowhere is there acknowledged this lone grandmother who by herself prayed every day. And nowhere is there acknowledged this gracious God who knows and hears and who acts on her behalf. No, we just, ah, he grew up. Isn't that wonderful? He went, he must have been that retreat at the lake. I did it, you know. It was God who did it. Anyway, that's my wife. So I, I wrote that. Now, uh, this is our last session, and I told you that I liked, I, wanted, I was sharing with you things that, major things that had altered the, the pathway of my life. Uh, from which I never recovered. Things that just altered me. My heart, my, my motives, my, my longings. I, it, it just changed. One of the, uh, one of the things that, uh, that I have been deficient in. Well, I, well, let me just get into my talk here. Every morning when I get up, I did it this morning. I pray three, three, three things before I ever get out of bed. I pray, one's based on uh, Mark 8, 34 through 38. Do we have, have we ever been able to come up with the slides? Put, put, yeah, put the, next, put the first slide up there. Ah, the magic of technology. <laughs> but I pray, this is the first thing I pray. It, it, where God says, and when he had summoned the disciple of the multitude to himself, with us the disciples also, he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Get this, for whoever saves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will save it. For what shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? Based on that verse, every morning when I get up, I pray uh, I pray, God, I lose my life. I take all that I am, all that I have, and all that I hope to be, and I yield it to you. I lose my life for your sake. I give it to you. That's the first thing I pray. Then the second thing I pray, what's the next one? Ah, 
toughest thing I have ever tried to do. I'm sorry to say that, but it, I, I got to be truthful. Ladies, I, I'm sorry. But husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. And then there was another verse. No man ever hated his own, I mean, uh, no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Ephesians 5, 25 and 29. I read that. And you know, one time I found myself wishing that that verse wasn't in the Bible. But it is. And I can't escape it. And it's a command. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loves his people. But to be honest, I, well, that's the one. Then throw up the, well, the other thing, throw that one up there. But this is, has to do, this is just a verse I picked out. It has to do that I want to live purposely. And I say, God, I yield to you my life. Everything that I am, everything that I have, everything I hope to be, I give it to you. Second, God, would you help me today to love my wife as Christ loved the church? And then, God, would you help me to live a purposeful life today that I would not. In fact, let me, here's how I wrote it. Uh, the third is that, God, would you help me this day to live a life of purpose that I would live fully engaged in being who you have designed and called me to be, doing those things you have called and equipped me to do, and that I would not waste a single day in the pursuit of that which has nothing to do with your purpose and calling and making me. So that's what I pray. The third thing I pray is I might live a purposeful life. We've already talked about that. So I want to give you a couple of shots on lordship and on loving your wife. I'm going to expand the loving your wife to, to loving period, but uh, I want to do that. Um, uh, could we get the uh, whiteboard over here? A couple of guys bring the whiteboard. I want to draw a little diagram that I drew for a fellow. Uh, I can be talking while they're moving it over here. Uh, I got a call one morning for a fellow that I was meeting with. One of the, uh, I hate to use the thing I'm, I'm discipling the guy because it's more than that. I, when I meet with men, I'm trying to develop the whole life. I mean, everything about you. I want to make everything about you better. So that's what I do. But I'm meeting with this guy. His name is Mike. And he calls me one day. He says, Chuck, would you, uh, I want you to pray for my father-in-law. Thank you. And uh, he said, I want you to pray for my father-in-law. I said, well, I knew his father-in-law. I'd had lunch with him one day. And uh, I said, well, what's up, Mike? And he said, well, Chuck, he's just getting into some really weird stuff. He, uh, he's meeting with a group of men. They've been meeting for about a year. And he said, they, what they're now doing is they're trying to have out-of-body experiences. He said, they're trying to, you know, they'll be in a meeting and they want to try to get their spirit to leave their body and then drift above the crowd. And, and, and they would exercise power over those people in the room. And they're trying to do that. He said, Chuck, it's the weirdest stuff you've ever seen. It's really scary to me. It's getting bad. And he said, uh, he's, go, he's joined the gym about six months ago. But the thing that bothers me is he went down to the gym. He's, he's, he's pumping iron. He's really wanting to bulk up and and look better, and, but and he's, that wasn't working too well, so now he's taking major injections of testosterone. And he said, that's scary. I, I don't know what that's going to do to him. And a couple of months ago, we found out he was, look, he was spending time with another woman. I said, man, we're, we're, it's, Chuck, it's frightening. So I said, okay, Mike, I, let my, I, I know you're dead. I, I will pray for your father-in-law. I will. And then I called him back in about, oh, 20 minutes. Ago. I said, Mike, can I come over and spend time with your family? I got something I want to show you. Uh, can I come over? He said, well, can you come tomorrow night? I said, I'll do that. So I show up the next night, and they put the kids to the bed. He, has four, he and his wife, Alina, have four kids. So they got the kids all settled and everything. And we went and sat down at the dining room table. His mother-in-law was there. I was here. And then his wife and, and Mike. And I took a piece of paper and I drew something on that piece of paper. And it looked like something like this. I just drew the piece of paper. And I said, this is time. And this is about 55, 60, 65. And we're going to say, you know, this is about 85. And I'm going to draw a line that is your ambitions. 
Maybe your uh, goals. I'm going to draw another line. talks about your capacity. Maybe your ability. So this first line out here someplace is your ambitions. And you have these ambitions, the things you want to do and accomplish and have. And you've got these, maybe it's the house on the lake, maybe it's the certain car, maybe it's so much money in the bank, maybe it's trips, maybe, but you have these ambitions, you have things you want to accomplish, you, you have things you want to do. And then your capacity, generally speaking, will exceed that. You, you're, you're learning, you, you, you've gone to college, you've got a good education, you get a job, you continue to learn, you take seminars, you read books, you go to webinars, you go to conferences, you continue to learn and grow, and so your ability, your capacity stays above that, and you're able to meet those needs. But at some point in your life, you begin to wear out. You begin to get tired. You know, I just can't go like I used to go. I, I, I'm not as quick as I... You, you, you know there's younger guys down at the office that can do things faster and better than you. You realize that. And you realize that you're kind of losing your ability. You're getting behind. You, you're, you're not as strong as you used to be. You're not as fast as you, as you... You're not as quick as you used to be. And you're becoming more and more aware of it. And so at one point, your abilities cross and your capacities across and drop below your ambitions and your desires and your dreams and your wants. And the further that line gets away from it, the further that line gets away, the more panic you become. You know what they call that right there? What do they call that? The midlife crisis. That's when you realize that you don't have it anymore. People are passing you up. You, you're, you can't hear as well. You can't see as well. You're, you're, you're back hurt. I can't play golf. I can't hit that ball like I used to could. You can't play golf. And you, you're losing it. And you know it. And you panic. I've known guys that have gone out and bought, bought uh, hard, big Harley Davidson to take a show off what a cool dude they were. I've seen him, I knew a guy that went out and brought a brand new Corvette convertible so he could ride around town with a top down and his shirt unbuttoned and just showing people who he is, you know. He's losing it and he knows it and he's seeking somehow to recover it. And so he goes to the gym and he starts bulking, he starts working out with the weights, but he can't lift what he used to could lift. I know what, I, so I start popping the pills and they don't work as fast as I want them to, so I take, start taking the shots. They're pumping me with this stuff. This to start. They're, they're, they're pumping me with the shots. I got to catch up. And so I'm pumping there. And then you know what? Also, it's this woman. She's old and flabby. I need somebody more my style. You know, more my class. So he dumps his wife for another woman. He's panicking. You know what's happening? For, because he who saves his life will lose it. And Jesus promises that it's not an, it's, you're not an exception. This is everybody. That if you, you think that you're going to take all that I gave you and all that I made of you, all the gifts and the talents and the abilities and the strengths and the understanding and, and the mental abilities, all this stuff that I gave you, and you take it to feed yourself, I guarantee you, your life will not end well. And that's true for us. It's true for every one of us. You take all that God has given you, all the, all the, 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 to the tools and the education and the opportunities and the, your, your, your mindset and your abilities and your strengths and your, will and your strengths, and you take all that and set it to satisfy yourself, I can guarantee you, your life will not end well. I can guarantee you every one of that. Now, I've never had that. You know why I've never had that? I gave mine away. I'm not living for myself. I'm, I'm the one that says, you know, that uh, for the, you know, the, the guy who says, uh, if anyone wishes to lose his life for my sake in the gospel, the same shall save it. That's me. That's what I did. That's what my wife did. We, we lost our wife, for, for our lives for our sake in the gospel. I, uh, I sat there. I finished that little illustration. And I kind of pushed the paper across to his wife. And I said, uh, is that where your husband is? 
And she just, she sat there with her, you know, she was looking at that piece of paper and had her elbow, elbows on the table and her hand and her face in her hands. And she just, she didn't say anything. And then finally she said, that's exactly where he is. He's losing his life. He knows it and he's in a panic. And there is nothing he can do. Let me tell you something. Biology always wins. You can take the pills. You can pop the. You can take the shots. You can buy this. You can dress you up yourself up and drive this. You. But let me tell you, biology always wins. You will not refute that. You will lose your life, unless. You gave it to Jesus. You, God, let me give you all that I am and ever hope to be. Would you live through me for my benefit and for your glory? You won't experience that. But I ask you, let me ask you a question. What does a man trade? Instead of following Jesus, what, in, what allures him? What induces him or, in, or just... Uh, uh, coaxes him into making these decisions to live for himself, to take all that God has given him. What is, what is it that allure, what, what, what allures him? What draws him in to that decision? And let me give you, is my next slide, I think it's up there. Yeah, this is what does it. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world so for any man to love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't have both. And I have known a lot of men who thought that they could. Yeah, I'll go to church, go to my Sunday school class, show up, but I'm really chasing the world. I really want what the world has to offer. Now, I need God to help me. And I've seen a lot of men who thought that they could coax God into helping them chase the things of the world. They go to Sunday school, they go to church. They give, to, they give to this mission project. This guy's going on a mission trip and he gives him a hundred bucks and hey, God owes me. And God's gonna, God owes me. See, I'm in good shape with God and God owes me. But what he's really doing is, is attempting to use God to chase the things of the world. I hate to tell him, but God is not fooled. I, uh, let me see if I, a man told me one time, and I, I want you to remember this. A man told me one time, he said, you may, Chuck, you may not always get what you, you may not always get what you want. Now see, yeah. You may not always get what you want, but you almost always get what you choose. And I wrote that down. You may not always get what you want, but you almost always get what you choose. So what are the choices? What allured him? What, what sucked him in? And the Bible says the things of the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, not of the Father. God didn't, God didn't introduce, introduce those things. That's the world. And the world passes away. I was... Um, I was talking to a young man one day, and I shared this with some of you, I think, at a table. This guy was a, a sharp guy, witness to him, shared Christ with him, knew him pretty well. He was a physicist, really a smart guy, and a neat, a neat guy. He wasn't a, a, an ugly, bad, egotistical, you know, uh, uh, jerk. You know, he was really a neat, a neat guy, physicist, very smart. And I'd shared Christ with him a number of times. Finally, I asked him one day, I said, Mike, um, okay, what's it going to be? You know, are you ready? You know, are, are you going to turn your life over to Christ and let Christ be the Lord of your life or not? And he was kind of silent for a minute and he said, uh, no. So I said, Mike, there's only three reasons why a man will not let Jesus Christ be the Lord of his life. Only three reasons. The first reason is, is uh, the lust of the flesh. He wants to chase the women, he wants to chase the skirts. And he knows that, you know, God might get in the way, so he doesn't want God around. But that's what, that's, that's the thing, that's the goal of his life. The second thing is lust of the, uh, lust of the eyes, things. He wants the latest toy. He wants the, the gadgets. He wants the house in the, in the mountains. He wants, he wants things. He wants stuff. 
He's going to pursue stuff. He wants a lot of stuff. He wants the best and the biggest, always. And I said, the third reason is the pride of life. Nobody tells him what to do. He runs his own show. He makes the call. He's the boss. And I asked him, I'm straight out asking him. I wasn't standing three feet from him. I said, Mike, which is your reason? And he says, um, it's that last one. And he made a comment. He says, I, I'm not going to bow the knee to anybody. Let me tell you something. I have never confronted a man. And let me tell you, when you confront a man and he says no, or you can, you're witness and a person says no, I do not want to follow Christ. You know why he doesn't want to follow? It's one of those three reasons. Always. It's always one of those three reasons. How do I know? Because that's all there is. The Bible tells me for all that is in the world, that's it. Those were the same three temptations that Satan used to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. That's the same three, three things. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of the life. That's all there is. And when a man rejects Christ, it's for one of those three reasons. Assuming he knows what he, he's had an intelligent presentation of the gospel, he understands the gospel. He, if he's ignorant and doesn't understand, well, then it may be an excuse. But I'm talking about somebody who's witness to, he understands what's at stake. He understands the gospel. And he makes the call. And he decides not to. You know, I've, uh, I have never met a man who didn't tell me why. So when I asked him, I said, you know, the Bible says there's only one of three reasons that you will not let Jesus Christ be the Lord of your life. And I named the three and I asked him, which one is yours? And he can tell me every time. He know, they know. They know what they're chasing. They know what they're after. They know what the goal of their life is and it ain't Jesus. And they know that. I've never had somebody that said, well, I don't know. I don't know why I don't want Jesus. Oh, no, they know. They know why. Lordship. Let me read you book. Ten, ten, ten. I saw that, and it's basically how to make decisions. I was with my, one of my, my wife and I went up to see her aunt in Miami, Oklahoma, little old bitty town. That's where Mickey Mantle is from, by the way. So we're up in Miami and we, uh, we went down and had breakfast at a little place there in Miami and right next to it was a bookstore. Oh man, uh, that's just like a magnet, you know, it just sucks me right in, you know. And so I saw this book on decision making and I, I bought it and read it. It's a pretty good book. It's written by a guy named Susie Welch. Uh, Jack Welch, uh, back in, you, you probably don't know, but back in the day, Jack Welch was the CEO of General Electric. And he turned General Electric into a kind of a minor uh, electrical equipment producing company to a mammoth. I mean, GE stock went off the charts. GE's profits went off the charts. GE grew and just became the biggest corporation, dominated the Dow Jones. Jack Welch became the guru, so he would go and speak how to manage, how to run this, how to do this. Somewhere along the line, he was interviewed by Susie, and he decided he needed to jettison his old flabby wife and get him a trophy wife. So he pursues Susie, and they get married. He dumps his wife, his older wife. Susie and Big Jack... Go to a party. Let me read you this. Let me see if I can find it. Yeah, let me read you this. Three years ago, Jack and I attended a beautiful New Year's Eve party. The host home, now this is Long Island. This is, this is, this is the opulence of, of Long Island. This is the opulence of Wall Street. Attended a beautiful New Year's Eve party. The home's host, the, ho the, the host's home was decorated with dozens of twinkling lanterns, waiters swishing around, topping off glasses, a jazz band filling the air with sparkly music. Around 10 p.m., a little tinkle bell, a, a bell tinkled for dinner, and we were swept into a grand tent lit by candelabras and festooned with flowers. 
And she said, I thought to myself, if this is, if this is ever a moment to think, ain't life grand, this is it. This was in Long Island. Opulent mansion of a home. Beautiful backyard. Well decorated. The elite invited to celebrate the new year. But then a strange thing happened. As soon as we sat down with our friends, there were eight of us at a table. Instead of ooing and aahing, as you might expect, one couple hushed us. It's crazy, I'm telling you. We've been trying to make a list since last week, exclaimed the wife. And we can't come up with a dozen people who are happy. She grabbed a piece of notebook paper out of her shiny evening purse and held it up for all to see. It was indeed a list of names, all but two or three scribbled out. We've been dying to see you guys tonight because we can't believe it, her husband said. Can any of you name a dozen people? And Jack says, you mean who are happy? Yeah. So she said, yes. Uh, The wife says, yeah, I dare you. You name me 12 people who are living a life they want. I'm talking about people who have got everything that you think you might need to be happy. These are people who are filthy rich. They didn't show up in their car. They were brought by their limousine. They didn't come to this little house or this little apartment. It is a mansion in Long Island. And they're saying, they're sitting there thinking, can you name me 12 people who are happy? At her invitation, every couple around the table entered into a little sidebar conference. Jack and my list came quickly, but just as quickly, we crossed the names off. Two other couples at the cable threw out another names, but most were dismissed. Too bitter. Hates his wife. Living the picture. In the middle of all this, the soup was served, but none of us seemed to notice. We were engrossed, stymied by the task of compiling a list. So it went for another half hour as... Each couple struggled to come up with a list of a dozen certifiably contented people. Now, here's the thing. The candidates didn't need to be without battle wounds. They didn't even have to be successful. They just needed to be at peace. So they set the lowest standard that you can set for what they define as happy, and they still couldn't do it. So here's the kicker. By the end of the evening, we'd come up collectively with 11 names that might work. So one of the husbands says, what a disturbing piece of data. Data. As we incongruously stood up, as, as a, bunch of, a bunch of people incongruously stood up and filled the dance floor with happy-looking people. Now, how come, why couldn't the people who have got it all, including your little trophy wife, and all the money you could imagine, prestige, power, name, recognition, tons of money, anything I want I can have, And he's not happy. Why? Why isn't he happy? Because he sold, because he gave up. He he, he is pursuing the things of the world. And he told God, I don't need you. I can make it. And I know what I want. And it ain't you. And how did they end up? You You know why you can't find people, and you know my age, who are certifiably at peace and happy. It's because they never gave their life to Christ. They're calling the shots. They're running the show. And I can tell you, you will not, want, you will not end well. Now, that's, I use that message, uh, you know, it's a lordship. And I speak with businessmen. I meet with businessmen. And I just, when you're dealing with businessmen, I mean, you come right down the gun barrel. You don't dance around it. I mean, you come right at them because that's what they want. Don't you play around with me. You give me the facts. And that's how we deal with each other. But you know, you know, why is it that the things of the world won't satisfy? And let me tell you a statement. I want you to remember this. You are not made such that the things of this world will ever satisfy you. I don't care how much you get. You are not made that way. You are made in the image of God, and the things of this world will never satisfy you. I don't care how much you get. I asked a guy one time, I said, uh, listen to me, I said, how much money does it take? How much does it take to be rich? How much is enough? You know what he told me? Just a little bit more. Because the things of the world will never satisfy you. 
I don't care if it's money. I don't care if it's power. I don't care if it's prestige. I don't care if it's lust. It will never satisfy you. You will always need just a little bit more. Now I want to talk about, uh, <laughs> let's talk about love. <laughs> That's a transition. <laughs> but a guy, I presented, I spoke to about 300 or so businessmen in, in uh, Wichita, Texas here, not Wichita Falls, Texas here oh, six weeks ago or so. And uh, one came up to me and he said, you know, your message is supposed to be on lordship and you're talking about love. You're talking about loving your wife. That's Christ loved the church. Your message was, the topic was assigned was lordship. And I told him, I said, you will never love your wife as Christ loved the church until Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life. It ain't going to happen. You will never love your wife as Christ loved the church until Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life. They tie together. So let me tell you about love. I came from a home, uh, where love was kind of a foreign topic. I had a good dad. He, he, he was hardworking. Uh, good mom. She was very responsible. We were poor. Didn't have much. Lived in kind of a, one of the poor sections of town. Uh, but, I, uh, but we had a place to sleep and clothes to wear and food to eat. Things were okay. But I, never, I don't think I ever heard the word love the whole time I was growing up. I never heard it. Uh, and our family wasn't, uh, you know, the huggy, huggy, kissy, warm, fuzzy. We, we didn't do that stuff. Uh, I don't think my dad ever touched me unless he was whipping me. He would grab me by the arm and with his belt and he would wear me out. I think that's the only time he ever touched me. I, uh, I went to Vietnam and, uh, I served in uh, I served in the Marines in very very dangerous situations. Always very I mean life was just precarious. We we were every mission could have been disaster and almost two missions we should have all been killed. I don't know how just logically I don't know how we got out of there. But my daddy would sit my dad would sit there and watch TV every night, and he'd watch him unload those body bags at Andrews Air Force Base every night. And those planes would come in and they'd take those black body bags off those planes. And he watched that every night, knowing I was right in the middle of it. I came home. I was all about 26, I think, by the time I came. I was 25 when I was in Vietnam. But I think I just turned 26 when I came home. And I walked in the front door and uh, I reached out my hand to shake his hand. And he just grabbed me and, and bear hugged me. And I'm standing there. You know, what, what is this? What's it, what is this? And then I remember thinking, well, he must love me. And, uh, but I, I had no idea what love was. You know, as I grew with the navigators and I began to speak a little bit here now, I would just be in utter fear that somebody's going to ask me to speak on love. I have no idea. I had no clue. I uh, uh, had gone to uh, A&M, all male. I didn't, you know, we didn't even, we didn't date. I didn't worry about what love was. I, didn't, uh, what I, yeah, I don't love my classes, you know, what else is there, you know? <laughs> and so I was there for, you know, a couple of years and I didn't think about love or, and then I joined the Marine Corps. You know what the Marine Corps' motto is? You know what their objective is? To meet, close with, and destroy the enemy or his will to resist. I trained in that. I became very good at that. And we trained in that over and over and over to meet, close with, and destroy the enemy or his will to resist. That's what I became good at. And then they put me in recon, the elite. You know what our slogan was? You know what recon slogan is? Swift, silent, deadly. That's what we were trained to do over and over, day and night. I became very, very good at being swift, at being silent, at being deadly. And then I got married. <laughs> Didn't really fit. <laughs> you know, I married a gorgeous, 
godly woman. She's a wonderful woman. I told somebody, you know, she was Nicole Kidman and Mother Teresa rolled into one. Good <laughs> night. Man. We had a lot of good times. We had some rough times. I did not know what love was all about. I wanted to. I knew what the Bible said. I memorized the verses. I did not know how to live it. So one day we're driving. We're living in Texarkana, Texas. We're driving to Fort Worth. She's crying. And it, I can't remember what it had been, but it was my fault. I do remember that. And so I'm, you know, trying to figure out what to say or do. And I finally said, uh, you know, sweetheart, I, uh, I know it's difficult to even comprehend this. But I love you with all my heart. And she says to me, just exactly how do you define love? And I say, uh, <laughs> quiet back there. <laughs> but, but she says to me, just exactly how do you define love? And of course, being a good navigator and having memorized a bunch of verses, I knew, I knew 1 Corinthians 13. And so I just hauled off and quoted. Uh, I said, well, you know, love is very patient and kind. She said, you're neither patient nor kind. <laughs> and she was right. And I knew it. And I struggled. And I prayed. I go driving, we're driving down the road in silence. Except for, you know, just the sniffling. But we're driving down mile after mile in silence. And I just prayed to God. I made a vow. I said, God, I'm not going to pray to you. I'm going to make a vow. I vow with all my being that I will never, ever be impatient or unkind to my wife ever again. I vow to you that. Now, the problem was I just didn't know how to pull that off. But uh, I didn't know. And you know, I, it's been my experience since learning what love is all about that I don't think most of the people in their congregation have an idea of what biblical love is. They, you know, our, our, it was like my definition. It was like, well, you're kind of warm and, and you say sweet things and you're kind of kind and uh, you're nice and uh, you kind of let people take advantage of you, you know, if you really are a loving guy. And, and you, know, you're, you know, you're kind of a Clarence milk toast. Uh, you're just kind of a weenie. Uh, that was my concept. And then so one day, one year, I decided I was going to, uh, I wasn't going to read the Bible through like I always do. I'm doing it this year. I'm reading the Bible through. I'm about 10 chapters behind. But I was going to, I, was, I decided, you know, I'm going to, I'm just going to read some New Testaments. I'm going to spend the year in the New Testament. And uh, so that's what I'm going to do. Uh, so I picked out, I had someone on my shelf that I used for reference material. And I picked out four of them. Here was the J.B. Phillips, and here was the Charles Williams, and the William Beck, and the Weist. And I picked out those four, and I read them. Now, I want to show you a verse that, that changed my life. Um, do we? Let me see. Yeah. Let me put the, okay. Paul is on his way to Corinth. They got problems. He tells them in his letter that you guys got some problems, and when I get there, we're going to straighten them out. But this is when he says, now, this is the Weist. Now, let me tell you, Weist, he was a, uh, he was a Greek scholar for 100 years. But when he, when he would write, he would give you the word, the picture. He would not just give you the English word for the Greek word. He would give you the, the picture that that Greek word is, was portraying, that was communicating. This is the concept. This is the idea. This is, this is what this Greek word is saying. This is the picture that he's drawing. And so when we would translate the New Testament, and he made his New Testament, it was kind of long. But every verse would be about seven or eight or nine lines long because he would explain to you the pictures that he was trying, that, that the Greek word was communicating. And it was cumbersome to read, but it was extremely helpful. I mean, I just loved the Weast. But here's what 2 Corinthians 4 21 says. So he's already told them, you got problems, I'm on my way. So he says, with a stick shall I come to you? In other words, you want me to paddle you? You want me to come and kind of spank you? Or in a love which has as its impelling motive the benefit of the one loved. The exercise of which loves demand self-sacrifice, 
and a spirit of meekness. And I read that verse and I sat there and I stared at that verse and I said to myself, that's it. That's, that's it. That defines for me and clearly pictures for me what the Bible calls love. It's not, it's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's that. It's always doing what's in the best interest of the one you loved. And I thought, I can do that. I know what to do. I know how to love others. And I, I, I was just, just almost uh, freed. I know what to do now. And you know, one of the things I had uh, building highways, there were always engineers that were over you. They, were, they had the authority over you, good or bad. You might know 10 times what to, you're the guy who builds roads. They're the guy who studied it in college. You know how to build it. They know how to, what the book says. And so, but they, had, they were your boss and they could tell you anything, make you do anything, even though you knew it was wrong. That's not the best way to do this, but they, they had the authority. And I had one guy in, in Arkansas that uh, he was a Sunday school teacher, but he, was, he wasn't married. He's probably 35 or so. He thought he was hot shot and he was, he was the God's gift to the highway department. And, and he was just arrogant. And he would make me do things that were just not right. But he had the power to do it. And he enjoyed that. Well, he's a Sunday school teacher. And I'm telling God one day, I'm praying about this situation one day. And I say, God, as far as I understand, I'm going to spend eternity with that guy. That's not heaven. That's hell. I could not. And, but the Bible, tell me, I know what the Bible says. It says, you know, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say, do you love your enemies? I could not do that. I knew I couldn't do it. But the Bible says that. So I read this verse and I thought, you know, I can do that. I can, I can do what's in his best interest. I can always do what's best for him. I don't, have to, I don't have to take him out for dinner. I don't have to have lunch with him. But I can do what's best for him. I can always treat him with love. I can always love that guy. And I'm telling you, gang, that idea, that understanding, that realization changed who I was. I now knew what love was. I could love people. And I do. Uh, you know, I, 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 uh, I, you know I, I, I knew what it meant to love my wife. And I, uh, I enjoy always doing what's in her best interest. I enjoy doing what's, what's, what's best for her. Not what I feel like. Not what, quote, she deserves. I do what's best for her. Every single time I do that, I, I treat my life like that. I mean, she gives me an anniversary card, okay? Old Chucky got an anniversary card. <laughs> and it's got some real sweet writing on it. But then you open it up and, and she wrote me a note. You know, dear meathead. No, it's just, she scratched that out. But, um, but she writes me this note. I know me, and I know that I don't deserve your love and your devotion, but I am grateful to God. And then she put down here, I have a wonderful life. I'll take that over you. You're neither patient nor kind. I'll take that. But always do what's in your best interest. And she says, and she says to me, I have a wonderful life. I'll take that. Am I perfect? Do I ever make mistakes? Yes. But I love that woman with all my heart, and I always do what's best for her. That's the way I treat my better. That's the way I treat my kids. That's the way I treat my friends. That's the way I treat my neighbor. That's the way I treat my enemies. I just do what's in their best interest. I do what's best for them. It costs me. Uh, I have to have a spirit of meekness, as the verse says. You know what meekness is? I looked that up. I, when I read all this, I studied that stuff. Hey, what does that mean? You know what meekness is? It means that you see circumstances as coming from God for your good. The meek man sees circumstances coming even from evil people. You see circumstances coming into your life from good people, evil people. It doesn't matter. But you see them coming from God for your good. That's the meek man. And if you're going to love others and always do what's best for them, 
That's going to be true in your life. You are going to be a big man who's willing to pay a price, but you're always going to do what's in their best interest, not what you feel like doing, not what you would like to do, not what you think they deserve. So, you know how a guy, I work with men, okay? And we get into this because we got some men that their marriages are absolute train wrecks. I was talking to this one guy, and he said, Chuck, you just, uh, you don't know what my wife is, is, has become. And I said, uh, you're right. I, know, I don't know what your wife has become, but my question is, what have you become? I'm not concerned about your wife. I'm concerned about you. I'm concerned about your response to God. I'm concerned about your obedience I'm not concerned about, about what your, life has, your wife has become. I'm concerned about what have you become. Another guy told me, he said, Chuck, uh, uh, you just don't know my wife. And I said, you're right. I don't know your wife, but I know this book. I know this book. And I don't know your wife. I don't have to know your wife. What I have to know is what does this book say? And it tells you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. No exceptions. I had another guy tell me, he said, well, I've tried to love my wife, but you know, she doesn't change. She's the same old woman. She doesn't get any better. And I say, so what? There is nothing in here that says that the wife has to respond. There's no reciprocity that's required. You love your wife as Christ loved the church, period. There is no exceptions. No, but what if? No, but what in except of, except, well, in case, that, no, there's none of that. You love your wife as Christ is the love of the church, period. I don't care how she responds. That's irrelevant. You do, you obey the scripture. You follow God. I work with businessmen. I've told you that. They're hard-headed. Selfish, stubborn, you name it. And I just come right down the gun barrel. Because that's what they need to hear. They need to know what this book says and what it means. And that's what I share with them. Anyway. Well, let me quit. Um, you know, one thing I thought as we close out this, this, this week. You came up here a certain person. I hope you don't go back to the same person. I hope God has grabbed your heart and you've made some decisions and you don't go back. You're not the same person. You've changed. God has done a work. I, I, I just hope you don't go back the same, the same person. Let me give you a couple of stories and what could. I got time for a couple of stories? One. Oh, man. <laughs> but they're both so good. Uh, okay, I'll tell you one story. I was a senior at A&M, and I, uh, I was involved with the Navigators. I was also involved with the Baptist Student Union, they called it back in those, you know, Collegiate Challenge. I was involved. I was a part of that. They had a retreat one January just after the second semester started, and I went. And when I was there, a little gal came up to me named Ruth Ann. A real cute little old gal. She says, I go to Baylor, uh, and you go, you go to A&M, right? I said, as I live and breathe. Uh, I said, yeah, I'll go to A&M. She says, my boyfriend goes to A&M. Would you please go by and visit with him? I, I'd really appreciate that. I, I, if you'd go by and talk with him. I said, well, sure. He said, he's in the band. Okay. Now, after the war, a lot, of serv a lot of people came back from the war and went back to college on the GI Bill. A lot of them. I mean, thousands. Well, A&M built 12 dorms, all just exactly alike. And, you know, they stacked them here, and, and they call it the quadrangle. Twelve norms is the Corps of Cadets lives in these 12 norms. The band is in dorm 11. I knew that. They didn't even name them. They just numbered them. And so the band is in dorm 11. So I go to dorm 11, and I go up to the, the, the guys on the fourth floor all the way down to the end of the hall, knock on the door, and he opens the door, and I say, Bobby? And yeah, and I said, my name is Chuck. I was at a Baptist retreat this weekend, and some cute little gal named Ruth Ann asked me to come by and visit with you. So I said, can I come in? And so I, he was standing there with his roommate named Jim Hottenroth, who was from New York. And uh, I didn't realize it, but Bobby was not in the band. He was the captain of the band. 
the A&M band was so huge that uh, they divided up in the white band and the maroon band, and Bobby was the captain of the maroon band. I mean, you're talking about a big man on campus. He was, he was a, I mean, he was a captain in the Corps of Cadets. His roommate was Jim Hottenroth. Uh, A&M has a tradition that they, they play taps. Every time a, a student that's currently going to school and so he gets killed or something happens to him, they shut the lights out on the entire campus. I mean, the entire campus was dark. And everybody in silence, not saying a word, and we walked to the administration building, and up on top of the building is three trumpeters, and they blow taps for this Aggie student who had been killed. And they do that every time. It's just usually two or three a year, maybe. John F. Kennedy was assassinated. We blew silver taps for John F. Kennedy. And Jim Hottenroth was the trumpet player for John F. Kennedy from New York. Brilliant trumpet player. Fabulous trumpet player. He was not interested in what I had to say the night. And amazingly, uh, I found out that he had graduated, went into the Air Force, was commissioned, flying uh, transport planes. They were resupplying Keysan, a Marine base that was under attack in north, in, in, right next to the DMZ. And uh, it, it was under heavy, heavy, heavy attack. And they were flying supplies out of Taiwan. And they, he came in in his C-130, and, they, and it was clouds and raining, and they were under fire and everything. So they banked off, and they came back for another shot. And coming in with all the clouds and the, and the bad weather and the raining, and, and they hit short of the runway, and the, the, the plane was just demolished, and he killed everybody. He was the first lieutenant. Killed him on his first mission. I had sat there and explained the gospel to all of them, to he and Bobby, Jim and Bobby. And I shared, my, I, I, I walked into the room, and I introduced myself, and I, I gave my testimony. And I said, well, you know, Bobby, do you, are you a Baptist? And he said, no, I'm, I'm not a Baptist. I said, well, you know, I wasn't either. I was a nothing. But, you know, one day uh, the catcher on the baseball did, and I shared my story. And, uh, and then I told him, I gave him the gospel. And I said, you know, that, you know, we're all sinners, but the sin has a penalty, but the penalty was paid by Christ, so salvation is a free gift if we will invite him into our life. I shared the gospel with he and Jim. Bobby told me later on, he said, you know, I was shocked. I'm a Methodist. And to me, your religion is extremely personal and extremely private. And here you are standing in the middle of the room with two strangers telling them about your life. He said, I was shocked. And so every time we had some little event on campus, I would go by and invite Bobby. And he would come. When, if he could. He was a senior. Had a lot of privileges. But he would come. Well, we had an uh, Easter break Hey, we didn't go to Hume Lake. We went to, we went to uh, the Navigator headquarters, beautiful Glen Erie Castle in Colorado. And so they were going to have a collegiate conference, U.S.-wide collegiate conference. And so the, the, Aggie, I mean, the Navigator leader there, Bill Gibbs, he said, hey, let's saddle up everybody. Let's go to the Glen. Let's go to the collegiate conference. All right. So we just got about 30 old mangy Aggies, and we loaded up and took off for Colorado. And we get up there, and we were having a ball. Great preaching. Great lessons, great teaching. But downtown Colorado Springs, there's a, a kind of an iconic place called Michelle's. It's an ice cream parlor. You can't go to Colorado Springs. You haven't been to Colorado Springs unless you go to Michelle's. I mean, it is the place. So one night Bill said, hey, let's all, let's all head down to, to, uh, to Michelle's. Let's, let's go down to Michelle's tonight. Okay, so we all pile in the cars and we all go down there. About 30 of us. We just invade the place. And, uh, and so we, you know, here's 30 young college students. You know, we're loud and noisy and obnoxious. You know how we are. And, uh, and, but they get into it. The whole, the whole store gets into it. Where are you guys from? What are you doing here? Tell us about you. And we're singing the Aggie War hymn, and we're having a great time. One guy tells me, he said, hey, where's Bobby? And I looked around, and he wasn't there, and I didn't even know where he was. And I'm responsible for him. And I didn't know. That night after the meeting, while we're all down there at Michelle's having a good time, God spoke to him. And instead of going to Michelle's, he took a walk. And it was about a foot of snow on the ground. March, Colorado, cold. 
and he was walking and he's trying to find a place to walk and he finally it, the, 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 the lawn is just covered with these beautiful spruce trees. That the, the limbs come down just sloping. They're beautiful trees. But the, the, the snow is trapped on all these, all, all these beautiful limbs. And so Bobby kind of wedged his way between a couple of limbs and got into the trunk of the tree and got out on his knees in the dirt. And one by one, he went through his life. He was a medical student. He'd already been accepted to med school. And he says, God, I, uh, I surrender to you my medical career. I want to do what you want me to do. I only want to do what you want me to do. But I give you my future. I love Ruth Ann. I give you Ruth Ann. I surrender her to you. I want to do, I want Ruth Ann's and my relationship to be what you want it to be. And one by one by one, he walks through his life and he surrenders everything in his life. To God. He lost his life for my sake and the gospel. That's what he did in the dirt beside that tree in that cold March night. That's us. And gang, I told this group of businessmen, listen, you don't need to leave here and go to Michelle's. You need to leave here and go find you some dirt. And you need to make things right with God. And if God has spoken to you during your time here at a workshop or in some of the things that, that Bob shared or I have shared and God has put his finger on something, you don't need Michelle's. You need to go find some dirt and you need to make things right with God. And I'm telling you, I told some group of men one time, don't you put your head on the pillow tonight till you've made things right with God. I, hope it, I would hope that you would do that here. It's been a tremendous week. You've heard some good stuff. You've, uh, you've had some good fellowship. You've had a good time with your friends. What has God got to say to you? What's his part in this? Why did he have you come here? What's he talking to you about? You know. I don't, but he does, and you do. So you don't miss the opportunity. Don't leave here and go back to the same person. You make things right with God. Okay? Let's pray. Father, it's been a great week, and we thank you that you have met with us. You have been here every meeting. And, Lord, that, uh, I, I think of the verse, uh, Jacob, who was not uh, a man of high character, but he said one time, uh, let us arise and go to Bethel, and I will build an altar there to God who met me and who delivered me in the day of my distress and has been with me everywhere I have gone. And I thank you, Lord, that there's not a single person here that you have not been with everywhere they have gone. And you long for them to find the joy of surrendering everything to you and letting you be the Lord of their life. I pray that you would do that. I pray, Lord, that we would work at being men and women who love. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I pray, God, that that would be true of our life. That we, we invite you, we surrender to you the, to be the Lord of our life. And we commit to be men and women who follow your command and love one another. Thank you for the week. Thank you for Neil and Jeremy and the rest of the staff who've poured their lives into us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.